This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in March 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Poet Naomi Shihab Nye says, I grew up in Ferguson, Missouri. No one ever heard of it. Then my family moved to Palestine, my father's first home. Uh, In Ferguson, an invisible line separated white and black communities. In Jerusalem, a no-man's land separated people designated by barbed wire. Naomi Shihab Nye has been called a wandering poet, interested in travel, place, and cultural exchange. This hour, we're going to talk about walls in the Middle East and the United States, capturing the voice of childhood and her current hometown of San Antonio, Texas. Naomi Shihab Nye is a claimed author, among many other books, of Habibi, a novel, and Siti's Secrets, a picture book which was based on her own experiences visiting her beloved Siti in Palestine. Her uh, book, 19 Varieties of Gazelle, Poems of the Middle East, was a finalist for the National Book Award. She's won many pushcart prizes, served for five years as chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She's taught writing and worked in schools all over the world, including in Muscat, Oman. She lives, as I mentioned, in San Antonio, Texas. That's where I reached her recently for this conversation. You say you grew up in Ferguson, Missouri. Then your family moved to Palestine, and I'm reading from the uh, a piece you wrote for the Washington Post. And um, you said right. a, a friend yeah. said your parents really picked the garden spots. Kind of a sarcastic. Uh. Yeah, kind of a sarcastic <laughs> comment that season it was. Yeah. And um, you know, Palestine. Well, that was that was an easy one because it was my father's home. It's where he was from, so he always dreamed of taking his family home. And my mother had grown up in greater St. Louis, not in Ferguson, but my parents moved to Ferguson uh, because it was a historic uh, community, still is, with beautiful big trees and kind of dreamy little quiet streets, hardly the depictions we saw of it on the news. And it still is um, kind of a dreamy, wonderful community. It's old. The the houses are old. The buildings are old. Uh, I mean, a lot of St. Louis is old because it's a very old city. But um, but that particular community was an interesting one to... I went to all of elementary school there then and half of junior high school. And and then my family moved moved away. But um, But of course, when all the the dramas around the death of Michael Brown happened in Ferguson and you know, all the demonstrations, it, it really took me back to, um, conversations I had with my father as a child in Ferguson when there was this invisible line between the black and white communities there. And it was hard, hard for a kid to understand, you know, why, um, why, why is this? Why? And my father was also, by the way, at that time, the only Arab in Ferguson. So he stood out on himself, and he was a very popular resident of the community. He ran for the school board and was elected. And I remember people saying, gosh, I can't believe anyone would vote, you know, for an Arab um, when you're the only one in town. And And my father had an interesting attraction always to immigrants himself, but he also had a lot of questions about the sort of uh, segregation, sequestering of of neighborhoods at that time, and why people uh, didn't all go to school together, why, why things weren't more mixed. And of course, this was an issue that was taking hold of him as he looked at his homeland, too, because he had grown up in a Jerusalem where the Arab and Jewish community were much more mixed and, you know, sharing of resources than they would become in later decades. And so he would talk about it and he would bring it up. And, um, you know, later I I just thought, wow, he would never believe this, especially being a journalist, Um, you know, somebody who covered hotspots and wrote about, you know, issues that became sort of iconic issues in American history or world happenings that he would never have believed all this stuff was going on in Ferguson and that Ferguson itself became like a a word to represent inequity and and trouble. I do want to speak up for Ferguson in the sense that 
I still love that community so much, and and I go back there, and of course it's become a very integrated community since we left. It's more interesting now as a community, but all the houses are still there, all the buildings are still there that were there when I was growing up, but now I, I walk around Ferguson and I feel um, I feel a great affection people one to another, which which many people wouldn't imagine. You know, they're still looking at Ferguson as this strident, angry place where the people in power in the community aren't really representing the residents. And I think some of that has been equalizing itself since Michael Brown's tragic death. I'd like to have you uh, read a poem, uh, if you would. Um, a lot to talk about here. I want to want to continue talking about this interesting subject, um, including, you know, your father said when he was growing up there in, in the um, Jerusalem area that the, the peoples would mix. There there wasn't a hard line now, a big old wall. I'm, I'm sure you've got yeah. some thoughts maybe on on the presence yeah. of this wall. But I let's don't like uh, have walls. you yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like walls of houses, but I don't like walls between people, groups yeah. of people. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, uh, the, yeah, this this poem uh, called "Blood." Yes, the poem "Blood," which actually has the scene in it uh, that takes place in Ferguson when the girl knocks on the door. So this starts with a quote: "Blood." A true Arab knows how to catch a fly in his hands. My father would say, and he'd prove it, cupping the buzzer instantly while the host with a swatter stared. In the spring, our palms peeled. True Arabs believed watermelon could heal 50 ways. I changed these to fit the occasion. Years before, a girl knocked, wanted to see the Arab. I said we didn't have one. After that, my father told more stories. Shehab, shooting star. A good name, borrowed from the sky. Once I said, when we die, we give it back. He said that's what a true Arab would say. Today, the headlines clot in my blood. A Palestinian boy dangles a toy truck on the front page. Homeless fig, this tragedy with a terrible root is too big for us. What flag can we wave? I wave the flag of stone and seed, table mat stitched in blue. I call my father. We talk around the news. It is too much for him. Neither of his two languages can reach it. I drive into the country to find sheep, cows, to plead with the air. Who calls anyone civilized? Where can the crying heart what does a true Arab do now? That's especially resonant. I, I, 9-11 hit us all. I, I know it hit you uh, pretty hard. I wonder if you talk about it, that. Yeah, it hit all, all people of the Middle East very hard, all Muslim people of other countries very hard. Um, in no way did it represent the majority of the people of the region. And, you know, also... Looking at this poem now, I think the line, who calls anyone civilized? You know, there have been so many tragedies, Tom, uh, that it's hard to even have any idea what what tragedy was I referring to at that Mm -hmm. moment. And, you know, now it brings to mind all the tragedies that have happened for the people of Gaza, having, you know, 500 people obliterated in a weekend by Israeli bombs and weapons and... um, just all the tragedies going all directions. You know, you th- I think about all the Iraqi civilian people who, you know, never did anything bad to anyone who were wiped out in, you know, Iraqi warfare and with the United States. What and um, and you think, wait a minute, that that wasn't good either. There are just so many things that have been profoundly troubling in in the lifespan. Of our looking at news, I wonder, and that's a that's a really great point of you know what tragedy were you you know it, it yeah, could, this poem could you could uh, remember there's so many could could refer yeah. to many tragedies. Uh, I'm interested in your father's trajectory. Uh, so he's a he's an immigrant, 
right, uh, to, to he America? Was, yes, he has died, but he was, and in fact, the last time I was in Logan, Utah, was the week before he died. So I have a very, um, a very intense kind of anxious memory of being in Logan before because I knew that he was very, very ill and he was getting weaker, and I felt very anxious about getting to him in time. And um, so I, I remember walking the, the beautiful streets of Logan with him in my mind so much. But he was a Palestinian born in Palestine, in Jerusalem, uh, of a Muslim family. He had brothers. He had one sister who, who died young, whose name was Naomi. I was named for her. And, um, and he grew up you know, loving, loving his place. He was born in 1927, so when he was 21 in 1948, uh, the formation of the State of Israel, and things started changing dramatically for Palestinian people. My father's family lost their home and uh, lost everything they had, you know, a little little money in the bank, lost it, lost everything. Um, they went to a village in what would become known as the West Bank, and they stayed there. Most of them stayed there for most of their lives. Now, many of the cousins, the younger people of my generation who would be born later, would be the ones who immigrated. But my father was the first to immigrate from his own family and came to uh, the American Midwest as a college student, as a university student. And he had a scholarship from... Palestine, and he always hoped to go back. That was his intention. And then he met my mother, who was an American, and um, and their their brave lives together began. You know, I think, wow, these people were brave. I think that's maybe you know we're comfortable in our homes. We uh, maybe we don't give the credit. Maybe some of us do credit for the the bravery that uh, refugees, immigrants. Yeah have. Absolutely. You're saying something so important and something I always think about and talk about. You know, I think refugees and immigrants, they have to be doubly brave. They have to be twice as brave as the rest of us because either they're losing everything and having to figure out a way to survive and start over, or they are changing their place dramatically, taking on new language, new culture, new society, new, new habits, new everything. How easy would that be to do? I mean, I've, I've been a, quite a traveler in my life, but when I wander around, say, in China or Japan, two places I've truly enjoyed working in schools and being, I just think, what if I were starting my life over here and I had to speak this language and, you know, know all these habits? And how long would that take for me to feel at home, to feel comfortable? Um, you know, it's easy to be a traveler, but an immigrant is much, much braver. And I live here in San Antonio now for the longest place I've lived in my life. Um, you know, this is a city of a 63% Mexican-American population. So uh, people in San Antonio are very respectful of culture and immigration and um, mixing, mixing and mingling. Well, I want to read uh, back to you a quote of yours about that, uh, but I want to—I'm uh, curious where your father came to. He, you know, he lived a lived a life of, with you know a lot of—I guess I was going to use the word adventure. A lot of stuff happened, um, right? And yeah. uh, grew up in a time where you know Israelis, Palestinians mixed, and then I'm sure in his lifetime the big wall went up uh, over there. I wonder at the end of his life where where did he get to? Was he? Cynical about was, those divisions? He was living was he in hopeful? Dallas at the end of his life, and um, he had been a journalist, newspaper journalist for the Dallas Morning News, and he had actually started kind of a free, after retirement, started a newspaper to try to connect the Muslim and Middle Eastern communities, a very vast community of the Texas metroplex, the Fort Worth-Dallas area. I forget what the number, like how many, 300,000, 500,000 people who are part of that wider community. So he had started this kind of more culturally oriented newspaper that was given away free in restaurants and grocery stores uh, on his own at the end of his life. But, um, you know, he was lucky to 
My father was always interested in news, and he was lucky to get a job for the BBC when he was 14 years old, working for radio, BBC Radio, out of Jerusalem. And because he had a beautiful voice, and he spoke English very well from childhood on, uh, he was hired to read the news at the age of 14 on the radio. And, you know, no one would believe it. When I was growing up, my friends would like, we would laugh and we would ask him, really, you read the news? Like, who would hire us to read the news on the radio? And he said, well, it was a different time. And I've now seen documentaries of Jerusalem at that time in which he appears. And he's actually at a microphone reading news on the radio. So I know he didn't make it up. But that was his his early love. And then when he came to the American Midwest, he was he said this crazy thing to the scholarship people. He said, send me to the middle. When they said, where do you want to go in the United States? Because it was kind of a transferable scholarship. And he said, I want to go to the middle. Because he had this idea that if you were in the middle, you would have access to you know, the whole rest of the country more easily. So there he went to Kansas. And my mother, who had never lived in Kansas, she was a St. Louisan um, from you know childhood, she was in Kansas just for a short, like a three-month spell, lucky her to meet him. Otherwise, she would never have met him. And they kind of arrived in the same town on the same day, one of those quirky stories, and you think, good heavens, my entire life depends on these two people meeting You know, at the age of 20, 22 or 23. Um, what are the odds they even would meet in this big world? So I think all of our family histories have those quirks and those intersections that, in retrospect, look impossible. And you know, when I think about poetry, sometimes people say poetry celebrates, you know, the magical, the extraordinary things in life. Well, what isn't? Really, what isn't extraordinary? I mean, I think all of the details of our life histories are pretty astonishing. You know, I think the fact that we're even born is pretty astonishing. You know, out of all the people who could be born, why were we born? No, I just, there are so many things, like basic human questions that seem provocative to me in the way that, that poetry likes to muse upon. So I guess I just grew up with a, an avid, a, acute awareness of that, that everything seemed pretty astonishing to me. You know, even when it was rough, even when things seemed tough, I think, well... This will get better, but, you know, how did any of this even happen? You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, my guest for the hour is acclaimed poet Naomi Shihab Nye. We'll hear another poem from Naomi Shihab Nye in the next segment. We'll also, I'll ask, uh, I'll ask her directly what she thinks of the uh, the wall, planned wall on the southern border. Um, and uh, I'll ask her about divisions in the country. She has a novel solution. More following this break. The life cycle of the butterfly is often used to represent change, rebirth, and hope. Composer Alyssa Morris sees the butterfly as a symbol of spiritual development. Coming up, music inspired by the earthbound caterpillar turning into a soaring butterfly on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. This is Jeannie Simmons for bringing more to life. An unexpected health event can require you to have key information about a parent. Medical history, health and life insurance information, advanced directives, banking information, deeds and titles, wills, marriage licenses, safety deposit boxes, investments, the list goes on. Parents may be hesitant to discuss personal matters. It can cause a change in the way your family approaches private matters. The more information your parents can share, the less stress on everyone when a health crisis arises. Having these critical conversations can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for bringing more to life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. 
Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in March 2019. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is acclaimed poet Naomi Shihab Nye. Uh, she was a finalist for the National Book Award for her uh, book, her volume, 19 Varieties of Gazelle. Other uh, volumes, Words Under Words, Voices in the Air, What Have You Lost, CT Secrets, You and Yours, many other uh, volumes. Uh, she has won the Pushcart Prize several times. You've used a phrase, um, I've seen you uh, use this, uh, that poetry helps you to relive, Re- relive. Yeah. Uh, connect you. Right. I want to talk about, a bit about that as we go along. Uh, but but this, I promised I'd read this, uh, a quote of yours back to you, discuss this. So you say, uh, talking about uh, moving to San Antonio, now you've made your, your life, uh, at least this point in San Antonio, my poems and stories often begin with the voices of our neighbors, mostly Mexican-Americans, uh, always inventive and surprising. And you go on to say, I never get tired of mixtures. Yeah. So it could be mixtures of True. all kinds, I guess. Right, mixtures of people, mixtures of old and new, mixtures of, you know, smooth and awkward, you know, just all of the mixtures of any given day. You know, I think kind of all of our lives are full of those. You know, you have parts of the day in which you feel very energetic, other parts in which you feel kind of tired, ready to wind down, take a nap, um, pause. And so I think this stuff of life that we live with you know, all the time. That's where that's where poems come from, literature, stories, where it all comes from. We don't have to look far. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't have to look very far. We have, we're living in an old, historic, inner-city neighborhood here in San Antonio that is also faced with so many dramatic changes on all of the rims of our neighborhood, like all these things are happening. And it's fascinating to me, you know, just to... to Look at it, think about it, wonder about it, you know, how it all goes together or doesn't, or, you know, seeing people move out, move away. Um, We're starting to be at the age where we've outlived. I mean, like a lot of people on our block are not here anymore who were here when we first came here. And so that feeling of time and their spirits are still floating around or, you know, we're still remembering things they said and did. And, you know, I think we're all always living in multiple layers of remembrance and, and present moment. And so that creates a richness, too. That's a mixture. Mm-hmm. You know, what used to be here and what's here now. I want to follow up with that. Uh, before we leave, um, at least politics for now, you said earlier, um, we referred to the big wall in, uh, you know, the, the Middle East, um, the wall along the southern border. The president wants to yeah. add to that. He said you don't like walls, and that that we well, you could you can infer that from a, a, a person who likes to to mixture and likes to, to write about mixture. Are you right. um, what? Where are you now in terms of? Are you hopeful that um, forces? Am I hopeful that the the rest of the wall will yeah. be built? Sure, I am. I'm an optimist. Yeah. So you know, I don't want the all the beautiful wildlife refuges on the border, uh, some of the great palm refuges, bird refuges along the Texas border with Mexico. We're not hearing a lot about these great places. They don't want to have a big giant wall down the middle of them. Um, I urge people to look up you know, stories on the Texas Observer, which is a Texas paper that I've worked for for years and years as the poetry editor. Um, it's a monthly now, but uh, they've had a lot of stories with the landowners along the border, um, I think it's pretty unanimous that none of these people are wanting a wall. And I read, I heard some statistic the other night on the evening news that all of the representatives who, you know, in all the states, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Texas, who have their districts right up to the border, none of them want a wall. So, you know, I think, 
I think it's a nice time to listen to people who are a little more expert on the the terrain and what really happens in the terrain. I wrote a big a poem in a recent book called Big Bend National Park says no to all walls. Um because I don't care what anyone says, walls are not beautiful. They're ugly. Uh, the wall that divides Palestine and Israel is not a beautiful thing. It's not an organic and beautiful thing. But the landscape is very beautiful. But it is an intrusion on the landscape, and it represents something which is grievous. And, you know, if you live in a 63% Mexican-American city, as I do, um, I respect Mexico. I love Mexico. Um, drug dealers do not represent Mexico any more than drug dealers represent the United States. You know, we have plenty of our own over here. So, um, you know, the idea that we need to create an edifice that costs a whole lot of money and probably won't work anyway, because everybody knows all the reasons why it wouldn't work anyway, um, it's ridiculous. Now, Big Bend National Park, one of the most beautiful national areas of our nation, of all national parks I've ever seen, um, that gorgeous place certainly doesn't want a wall uh, passing through it or across it. Um, One of the late, great Anthony Bourdain's uh, programs in one of his final seasons was uh, taking place on that Texas border over there by Big Bend National Park, the far west Texas segment of his Places Unknown series, and he interviews all kinds of people in that amazing show, and they all say, no way, no, we don't want it. So, you know, hopefully a democracy is a place where we listen to human voices. It's the difference between a democracy and other kinds of places. You've had, um, you know, from heritage, from experience, moving around... I think you've, you've been called a wandering poet, right? I think you've applied that maybe to yourself. Yeah, somebody applied yeah. said that about me yeah. once, and I liked it. Yeah. That's fine. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what lessons you can, uh, and, and poetry, which in its essence uh, hopefully connects people, right? Uh, what would you say about our, seems like we have a lot of divisions, you know, not our physical divisions, walls, a lot right. of divisions. What, uh, what would you say, yeah. how, to, how to better connect? Well, you know, thank you for asking me that question. Um I I am a believer, as all poets are, in the imagination, in the human imagination, and that I think we do go through periods and eras, periods of time, in which things feel um, sadder and angrier, and I definitely think we're in one right now, and, you know, there are probably many reasons for it, but I think that those of us who retain a belief in human imagination and new generations coming up and children um, can hope that that things will improve. Something I've, I've learned in my travels or I've always felt everywhere is that most people, the vast majority of people, do wish to connect. They do wish to have meaning in their lives and, in, and to witness meaning in the lives of those around them. Um, they do care. Uh, you know, every time there's one of these stories about, well, lately I've been reading a lot of them about people during the the government shutdown who were not going to be able to pay their rent or get their chemotherapy treatments or this or that, and all the good Samaritans who pop out of the woodwork, I'll pay it. Um, I love those stories. We all do. Somebody who comes along and, you know, wants to bail someone else out, even if they don't know them. You know, I think that's a that impulse is a very important part of the human spirit, and and I'm going to put my faith in that, that people will continue to do helpful things, good things for one another. I feel very lucky to have worked in education all my adult life because every school is its own universe and constellation of individuals and idiosyncrasies and problems and dreams, and, you know, to be to be part of school environments is... Uh, to participate in so many worlds, worlds of hope. And um, uh, so, you know, I think that people who are feeling very um, discouraged right now, maybe trying to focus a little more on, on those those humans around them who, who 
give them more more encouragement, more hope, and you know maybe babysit a little more, spend a little more time with younger kids, and I think you feel your own spirit revive. Yeah, that's that's a good prescription. Yeah. 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 Maybe it will always put us back in our places. <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, It'll shape us up. Right. I wonder. Um, I want to. I want to hear one of your recent poems, uh, Aurora Borealis, is from. Sure. Uh, the, yeah. the latest collection, Voices in the Air, poems for listeners. Thank you for asking me to read this. This poem takes place in Fairbanks, Alaska. Aurora Borealis. The light was speaking to me, stretching out its long, gleaming fingers, pointing down. Maybe it could hear my shout. Shimmering green parentheses put me in my place. My place was low. Every earthbound element, Alaska gas, Sam's sourdough cafe, lifting into radiance. Snow felt less cold. Tiny human leaping under green swoops, rippled fringes, staggering swish, middle of night, by myself, not by myself, came so close I almost felt more than I had been waiting for. What possible tellings, purple, purple, purple. You saw nothing, knew nothing before now. Now what? Do you know? <laughs> very, very good. Do, do you see the aurora ever from Logan? No, no, I don't. No. I don't think so. No. Yeah, yeah, I don't. You know, when I was a child, if somebody had said, "What are the two things in the whole world that you really want to see in your life?" I, I would have said the pyramids of Egypt and the aurora borealis. And I have to say, I think the aurora wins. It's pretty great. If you were going to put, I mean, the, the pyramids are astonishing and mysterious, and, and I've seen them many times. But to me, the aurora borealis is really one of life's great wonders. And I, I do feel that seeing it was the greatest experience of awe I have ever had on this planet. I want to read, uh, here's another quote uh, from you. I've always loved the gaps, you say, the spaces between things as much as the things, as much as the things. I love staring, pondering, mulling, puttering. I love the times when someone or something is late. There's that rich possibility of noticing more. In the meantime, poetry calls us to pause. There's so much we overlook while the abundance around us continues to shimmer on its own. And I think that's one big thing that poetry can do for us, help us to be present I love hearing you read that quote. I really like that quote now. <laughs> it sounds nice. I do. I thank you for reading it. Yeah, that's that's. And it, it's a good reminder because you can do it every day, and I think it's always. I've always had this obsession with arriving early places, you know, like whether it's the airport or even when I was a kid going to school. I always wanted to get there like early, early. And my parents would say, "What is wrong with you? No one else wants to get to school early." But I like to be there just to kind of soak it in and look at things and observe and be there when other people arrive. It sounds crazy, but I enjoy that. What is it specifically about that? Well, when you're early, then you're not anxious. You're not worried about okay. like getting there before the bell or arriving on time. So you have, when you're early, you have then more, more of a leisure of, um, of attitude of, of looking around just to see, you know, just to kind of feel, feel things out. Mm-hmm. Kind of get in the mood. I like to get in the mood of, you know, even if I go to a lecture or, or or an event, you know, I like to get there a little early so I could just find a seat, and just pause and, you know, quiet down my thoughts mm-hmm. and be be ready, you know, kind of create a readiness before, before the event begins, whatever happens. So, um, you know, I, I've always felt that even driving, this sounds really kooky, but even sometimes at a red light, you think, okay, now I have a moment to really look at what's on this corner. You know, have I ever gone in any of these places on this corner that I've passed one million times? And lately I've been making a real effort to enter places in our own city here that like, well, I've passed that a million times. I've never been in there. I'm going to go see what it is. Usually you're I've I've found I'm pleasantly surprised by things being more wonderful than I imagined they would be. So, um, 
time to see what's already there. I sometimes have that thought. I, I never do it, so I'll, I'll have to do that. Have to, yeah, good s- luck. See, I hope you like something. it as much yeah. as I do. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, you, I, I heard you in another interview. This was in Idaho. You said something that struck me. It's good to live in a place that has space, you said. Yeah, that's right. And Idaho, Utah, and Texas all do. We're very lucky. And to have, you know, horizons and sunrises and sunsets and large skies, large sky vistas. Yeah, I've worked in India a lot. And I know India has space. It's a very large country. But sometimes when you're in India, I mean, even for me, crossing a street in a great Indian city can be a real challenge. Like, wait a minute, I've got to figure out what the traffic is doing here. And um but I think about I think of space as a luxury. Or or Japan, for example, after you spend time in Tokyo and you come back to the United States, it seems as if we have just an incredible amount of extra space everywhere. People have such huge you know, we have yards, we have vacant lots, we have parks, we have fields. Um, I know Japan does too, but I've always been in urban situations, so what does that do for you, do you think, or do for us if we take advantage of that space? Well, I think, you know, it helps us think about our minds, too. I think our minds have space, our notebooks have space, space on paper, um, you know, not not always feeling overwhelmed and like everything is crowded together. You know, I think one thing that I think poetry gives us, when you when you read a poem, if you just pause for a moment and hold it, or like let it hover around you, especially if it's a poem you like, you know, there's that sense of, of, of a more spacious mind or a more spacious beam of thinking uh, that comes to you fr- through the poem. It's like, oh, I never quite thought of it in that way, or um, that, that's interesting uh, to look at it in that way. Uh, just, just to take that pause. And so I think it gives you a, a sense of largeness, larger awareness, and I don't think that can hurt us. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, you may recognize the voice. Acclaimed poet Naomi Shihab Nye is my guest for the hour. Coming up following a break, our last segment with Naomi Shihab Nye. She says, all little children are poets. I'll ask her to expand on that statement and uh, her experiences uh, working with, interacting with teenagers, discovering writing in juvenile detention. Also, how do you encourage someone uh, who wants to become a writer? We'll hear another poem as well. More following the break. When Amy Webb turned 30, she decided to find her true love on an online dating site. And to do it right, she hacked the algorithm to find the perfect man. And as it turns out, I was the most popular person online. (laughs) Stories of how we love. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. That's coming up this morning at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Over the Memorial Day weekend, Tyler Riggs and David Fawcett came into the UPR studio to talk, to listen, and hopefully to bridge the current cultural and political divide. Both heartily recommended one small step we can all take. We need to learn, I think, as a society to just get along better. Invite your neighbors over to a barbecue that have completely different beliefs than you. We've got to start having the barbecues. I need to reach out to people in starting in the neighborhood that I don't talk to and get to know them. And you don't have to become best friends, but you should find some element of common ground. If you'd like to participate, go to upr.org and sign up for StoryCorps' One Small Step. My name is Larry Cannon. I have listened to Utah Public Radio since its inception. Our lives are richer for what Utah Public Radio brings into them. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock, on Utah Public Radio. This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in March 2019. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with acclaimed poet Naomi Shihab Nye. You have said that all little children are poets. I think we can relate to that. What? Uh, well, again, you know, I, I, I do believe that, and um, I am quoting my favorite poet, William Stafford, who was originally from Kansas but spent most of his life in Oregon as an adult. And people used to ask him, when did you become a poet? And he would say, well, that's not really the right question. When we're very little, we're all poets. Um, the question is, um, how do we not lose that? How do we how do we keep it up? How do I stay a poet? And so for him, it was regular writing and experimenting with language and trying new things. And um, you know, I have a we have a an almost three year old grandson now, and he is the most charming user of language I I know in my life these days. And and I know I felt the same about his father as well when his father was a little boy. Uh, that that you know our son was the best poet I'd ever encountered, and the metaphors and similes he made were prolific and constant and completely unselfconscious, and you know taking notes on what little people say is one of the most revitalizing experiences I know to this day, and you can barely keep up I mean the way they talk is so great you have to really do it on the spot, regularly, quickly, or they'll say something else, and then you'll forget the other wonderful thing they said. So, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in classrooms over the years encouraging young poets, and it never ceases to amaze me, um, even when they're kids for whom English is a second language, because often I've been overseas in other countries working with kids who speak a different language at home, but they're speaking English to me in their international school. And the way kids talk is just, um, without a doubt, the most beautiful poetry we have going. And so staying in touch with that part of ourselves that is still freshed with, fresh with language and refreshed by language is partly what, uh, what poets try to do, I guess. And you have written for children. I've written a lot for children over the yeah. years, yes, and I love writing for them. And I love thinking about them reading and you know, their minds, their eyes, their their thought patterns. What, what is and, it, do you think, that draws you to, well, to, to write for children? Well, I think it's like a, an essential, simple language that we start out with, um, where you're you're hoping to tell a story or you're wanting to describe a conversation, write a conversation that might um, interest them, or you're trying to ask a question, because kids are so full of of questions about everything, and and they're not, you know, predicting what the answer is going to be. They're genuinely curious about something. And that sense of attitude and perception is very inspiring to a writer. So when I'm writing for kids, I feel as if my own brain is fresher. My own spirit is um, alive in maybe a wider way, a larger, deeper way than if I were just thinking I'm writing for someone who's an adult already. Uh, You know, I think it's something that we can all learn from, too. I've heard of, of writers in my city for example, who go and work with teenagers who are in uh, detention lockup, those um, hard places where many teenagers go. And I've heard of something that they have asked. Actually, I think this idea came from the, the teens to a local writer who was working there. And I've worked in these facilities many times myself, as well as in prisons and jails. But kids would say, can, I, can we write picture books, like books that would be appealing to somebody who's three, four, five, um, because we want to tell that kind of a story, you know, an essential, basic story. And it's a very moving request. You know, someone who's had some complications in life, some rough spots along the way, some difficulties, whatever they may be, to think, I want to go back to that kind of language, that kind of story that a little child responds to, that's something that I could write right now. Um, 
And I've gone to some of the readings where they share these pieces that they write, these little books, and they're amazing. They're incredible, incredible stories with all kinds of metaphorical depth. So I think whatever age we are and whatever circumstance we're in, it can be helpful to us to think, okay, I'm going to write this as if, as if I'm, I'm writing for a 10-year-old. Yeah, that is moving, uh, the story. Yeah. Uh, one more question on this, and I was just going to ask this about children, but I guess anybody, starting with children, I guess children, most children maybe don't need encouragement, but if you're going to encourage a child or a teenager in your life to, to jump into poetry, if that's something they want to do, what to do, how to do, how to go about that? Oh, that's such a good and important question, Tom. Well, I think exposure to poetry is number one, like reading to them and letting them hear poems and have poems in their, you know, in their ears, hear them, hear them around them, be surrounded by poems. Some of the best classrooms I've ever worked in, teachers have poems posted everywhere or lines from poems, just so wherever a child looks, you know, there, there's word, there are words, there's language to think about. Um, And so having the exposure the repetition, like if a child likes um, a poem or a book of poems, you know, keep sharing it over and over. Uh, our grandson these days keeps wanting me to make up a song that I made up for him like six months ago for the first time, and I can never remember what I sang all these different times or what the, even what the tune was sometimes, but I'm constantly sort of building on that mysterious song that he loved so much that was about a broken-down car, and for some reason... It just captivated his imagination and all the ways you could encourage a broken-down car to start again. So, you know, it could be repetition, but exposure is the number one thing. Just letting them hear poems, see poems once they can read, um, feel poems around them. And and then sometimes just talking in a certain way. Like if, if if they say something that is poetic, that strikes you as poetic, kind of responding to it, in a poetic way or having a back and forth that stimulates that kind of language. Uh, but definitely exposure. And that's one thing I love about poetry is you don't have to be an expert on poetry to share it. You know, most people in the world have a few favorite poems, something they found once that helped them in a time of need or something somebody read to them once that seemed beautiful. And um, just encouraging that sharing from from all people, not just from people who spend, you know, an excessive amount of time with poetry. It could be from anyone. You know, I love jazz, for example, and I've seen that a certain kind of energy comes into my grandson when I put on a jazz, um, when I put on, put on some music. He he moves differently. He gets happy. He gets delighted. He dances. He'll even say, let's hear that again. I want to hear that again. Well, I'm not an expert on jazz. I couldn't, you know, give a talk on it or anything. But I love having it around us. And I think people should feel comfortable in that same way with poetry. I think one of the the disservices that was often done to poetry when, when some of us who were older were growing up was poems were presented as this thing that you sort of, do you get it? Like, is it a riddle? Is it a code? Do you understand it? Do you get it? Well, nobody would say that about jazz. Do you get it? They would just enjoy it. Um, of course, somebody who studies jazz knows there are all kinds of things you need to get about it, or you could get about it, but they wouldn't require those things before you participated in it. And so I think that's a disservice that was done to poetry. Many people were put off by from poems because of the kinds of questions that were asked or the attitude with which poems were approached. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, and that, that resonates with me. I, I still sometimes approach poetry, you know, if I, I think, I, I don't get this, right? I oh, guess. yeah, sure. <laughs> just just, yeah, to, no, just enjoy and I, it. And I feel that way too, Tom. I mean, yeah. I'll read, I, I can read the poem of the day on poets.org, which is a fabulous website that gives, you know, everybody a poem in their inbox in the morning from the Academy of American Poets. Free. You can subscribe to that free. But I, I wouldn't be able to say every poem strikes me with the same resonance of meaning or that I love every poem equally. Of course I don't, and I'm a poet. But, you know, I could say, well, I think I'm going to look, I'd, I'd need to spend a little more time with that one, or I need to think about that one more. 
no, that's not my favorite poem. I'm not going to send it to my friends. But I'm sure there's something interesting going on in it, and I'm sure there will be someone who responds to it in a different way. Uh, I wondered, is there any other poem that you'd like to, to read before we close here? Well, um, since I talked about um, babysitting and children, I'll read to babies. All right. And this is like an invocation of thinking about babies and also all of us. May polar bears welcome you to northern Manitoba, their lumbering grace marking the ice. May there still be ice. May giant trees lean over your path in warm places, brush your brow. So many details now disappeared, tiny toads in deserts, fireflies. Where are the open window screens, whispers of breeze against a sleeping cheek? If we stop poking holes in soil, watching onions grow, what will we know? If we no longer learn cursive, will our hand muscles disintegrate? You blink, beginning to focus. Where will the lost loops of handwritten G's and Y's go? We dream you will have so much to admire. I realize I'm reading that right now, right next to my grandson's onion bed. (laughs) He planted his onions about two or three weeks ago, and they're doing very well. <laughs> so I, I hadn't even made that connection that, that I had ever written a poem that involved mm. planting onions, but there yeah. it is. No, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for your, your kindness, your curiosity. I really appreciated your beautiful questions. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate that. Um, and the latest volume is Voices in the Air. That's, uh, that's out, and people, all the volumes are out. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming people can get those. Much and I look forward to being back in your wonderful state. Okay, we'll we'll look forward to having you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so very much, Tom. Okay, take care. Okay, and bye. bye. Thank you for listening uh, today. And uh, we have an email that's come in uh, here uh, during that uh, last uh, segment. Uh, this is <clears throat> this is excuse me, Steve. Uh, Steve says all that space that America has. Quite true, it does, especially in the Western U.S. But my reaction, meh. Give me the density, the tightness of old European or Asian cities and towns. To each his own, eh? That's Steve. Thanks uh, for sending that in, Steve. And uh, you can email us as well, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, the Center for Persons with Disabilities, for sponsoring our news programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.